0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Oh, we got to have a look. Here's Johnny! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that is terrifying. I was going to say we have to have a little fun today, but that didn't sound like fun, did it? That, of course, classic scene from The Shining. I just watched it again about 10 days or so ago. Still terrifying out there. So we're going to have some fun with this. Happy Halloween, everybody. We want to know, what is the scariest movie of all time to you? Now, here are the choices. We only had four spots to pick, okay? So we picked The Exorcist, because that's mine, The Exorcist. Come on, scariest movie of all time. The Shining, our producer Alan says, that's the scariest movie to him. Halloween, classic, right? Very scary movie or other. You reply and tell us what is the scariest movie of all time. Right now, I got a lot of votes for The Exorcist going on. So if you want to cast your vote, go online. You'll find it at simisarah 980 or at CKNW on Twitter. You can also email me, of course, Simi at CKNW.com or call us Tell us, what is it about this movie? Like, the first time you saw it, how scary was it? What did it do? I remember watching Friday the 13th, and I was just a kid. I don't even know why my aunts and uncles let me watch this. I pretty much slept with one eye open for, like, the next couple of years. What is the scariest movie of all time to you? Call our buzz line as well, 604-331-2899. And we will continue to have everybody's choices. Thomas has already messaged me to say The Omen. The Omen, absolutely to him, the scariest movie of all time. What's yours? Let me know. We'll talk more about it on the show today.
1: Well, we've announced that if a fair deal isn't reached by 8 a.m. on Friday, that we will move into job action. It will consist of a uniform ban for all transit operators and a maintenance ban on overtime for all maintenance workers and C bus workers.
0: That is Gavin McGarrigal, the head of Unifor speaking on the John McComb show this morning. And this has to do with the transit strike that we are expecting uh, tomorrow morning. So now we're trying to figure out exactly what that means, what's going to be impacted, what isn't now TransLink is advising passengers of a potential reduction to bus and C bus services, that would start at 8 a.m. till tomorrow morning because of the strike, and that they say is because bus maintenance workers say they are not going to do overtime. That is going to be their job action. TransLink is saying, regardless of that, many services will be unaffected. SkyTrain, Canada Line, West Coast Express, Handy Dart, West Vancouver Blue Bus, and other contracted services will continue operating normally. But I'm guessing. That, you know, if you start to have real trouble on buses, you would see an increase kind of in capacity people trying to get on SkyTrain as well. So they're aiming to send out alerts as soon as possible regarding service disruptions. We will, of course, be keeping you up to date on all of our shows tomorrow to make sure you know exactly what is happening now, contract talks will resume later this morning, uh, but uh, there was no progress when they were talking on this issue yesterday. Now, our reporter, Janet Brown, is on site right outside that negotiating room in New Westminster where talks are set to get going again, and uh, she joins us now to talk more about this. Hi, Janet.
2: Good
3: morning, Simmy. Yes, uh, Johnny on the spot here outside the negotiating room uh, at a hotel in New Westminster, and I, I think everybody's hoping for the best today that hopefully... The two sides can come together and find common ground on a number of issues and and reach a tentative agreement today so that there is no job action come tomorrow morning. But, you know, right now we heard from Unifor spokesperson Gavin McGarrigal on the Mike Smith show this morning, John McComb show talking. And uh, he said yesterday, quote, the talks didn't go very well. Hmm. So that's not sounding very hopeful for today, But, you know, there's always optimism by both sides as they come together again to the negotiating table and, as I say, hopefully find some common ground. But as you say, if no deal is reached, if no tentative deal uh, reached today, the first phase of job action will begin tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And, yeah, it could be rather messy uh, with no overtime by the maintenance workers taking place and the bus drivers, as you said, not wearing their uniform. Um the, the ban by the maintenance workers—that is what's going to impact everything. Simi, uh, mm-hmm. the union says the overtime ban uh, will gradually increase pressure on the system, and <clears throat> excuse me, and will quickly lead to fewer buses and could also impact C bus service. And they say that could have an immediate impact right off the bat at eight in the morning. So for those folks who rely on the buses and who rely on the C bus to get to work and get around. Yeah, it could be messy. And uh, while TransLink says there will be no impact to the SkyTrain system, right. of course, if, if the buses, if not as many buses are rolling and on the road, and if the C bus service is scaled back somewhat, people are going to turn to the SkyTrain system. Mm -hmm. And we heard earlier in the week from transit police that they were gearing up as early as Tuesday or Wednesday for a big crush on the SkyTrain system. And they're warning people, you know, give yourself plenty of time tomorrow morning. Don't wait to the last minute at 8 o'clock to decide... You know, I'm going to get on a bus or get on SkyTrain. Give yourself lots of extra time tomorrow morning to get to work. And hopefully employers will be giving people leeway in terms of what time they get there. But at the same time, the onus is on the commuter to um, also leave lots of time to try and get to work because everybody's been given plenty of notice that it could be a rather messy and and confusing commute tomorrow morning.
0: Now, Jenna, do you get any sense, any idea at all? Like, what are the sticking points? Are they the same ones that we've been hearing about?
3: Right now, we are told the key issues, and there's many, many issues, but the key ones, Simi, are wages, benefits, and working conditions. And we've heard that some drivers aren't even getting a break to use the restroom or to have a sandwich for a couple of minutes because their schedules are so tight. Now the other big one, of course, it's always up on the table for negotiations: wages and benefits. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are looking for wage parity with other drivers across the country. Metro Vancouver bus drivers, uh, Coast Mountain bus drivers, the top end they make roughly thirty-two dollars an hour and a couple of cents. Uh, back east in Toronto, they make thirty-six dollars an hour. So $32 an hour works out to about $66,000 a year for a Coast Mountain bus driver in Metro Vancouver. At the top end, the drivers in Toronto when you work it all out, they make about 72,000 at the top end. So about 6 six seven thousand more than a metro vancouver driver and then the other issue too that we're hearing from the union is that the maintenance workers for skytrain make more than the maintenance workers for the buses and they want wage parity there as well so that's another big sticking point so we'll see if they are able to uh, find some common ground, as I say today, Simi, and fingers crossed, yeah. toes crossed, that uh, they will work something out. But as I say, you know, Gavin McGarrigle the spokesperson for the Unifor uh, Union, not sounding that optimistic this morning anyway.
0: Right, but it's, it's, I take it as a good sign that at least they're still talking. It's not like talks have broken off and they've said we're full steam ahead here with job action.
3: Absolutely. As long as they are at the table talking, looking each other face to face, that. That is optimistic, absolutely, because the union walked away from the table earlier this week. So they were back at it yesterday. They're back at it again today. And they're obviously giving it all they've got, both sides, to try and reach an agreement here because they both know uh, that they don't want to inconvenience the public. And, And the problem is, you know, in terms of the union, it's very sticky here with the union and the public because they, of course, want the public on side with them but you know the minute the public gets upset and angry with the, with the bus drivers union then there could be trouble brewing the union needs the traveling public on side and that's a very fine line for them to walk so they, they they're obviously keeping that in 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 mind as they are at the table today as well but they they they, they have their demands they right. say the company knows their demands And um, we'll just wait and see. So here I am, Simi, waiting (laughs) to see how things go.
0: You're going to be be there. You're going to be there for a while today, I would imagine. Have they, Jenna? Do they have a schedule of job action? Like we know, tomorrow it's going to be no uniforms, um, and you know, no overtime. Does that escalate? I would imagine then in the days ahead if this continues.
3: They haven't exactly uh, lined it out for us, Simi. They haven't said, you know, uh, Friday. Well, they have told us what's happening Friday, but they haven't said, you know, what's happening Saturday or Sunday. It's sort of let's see. Let's see how things go along. But they did tell us that things will ramp up mm. uh, the longer that no deal is reached. And, uh, yeah, it will have obviously right. a greater impact on the public. And so, and so okay. we wait. We All wait. right.
0: We wait. <laughs> and we wait uh, to hear from you as well, Janet. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Simi. Uh, listen, we're going to talk right now about energy. Now, BC is fortunate to have an abundance of hydroelectric energy. It's one of our biggest assets, right? But is it enough? Is it enough to power a future that is filled with more and more electric vehicles? Well, that's the question that was addressed in a study done by the University of Victoria. And they're shedding some light on how much more electricity we are going to need if we electrify everything. And they're saying an extra 60% by the year 2055. How do we make that happen? Well, one of the authors of this study is Professor Kieran Crawford uh, from the University of Victoria's Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. I had a chance to speak with him this morning about that. Well, Professor Crawford, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. First off, what did you start looking at here? Where did you start from?
2: Uh, well, basically, we were starting from today's electricity mix and, and a, a very small penetration of electric vehicles. And then we wanted to look out uh, right after 2055, if we hypothesized we get 100% of new vehicles in 2040 being electric, or and then um, the full fleet would be electric by 2055. We wanted to see how does that impact the electricity mix? What does where does the generation come, basically, to serve that additional load from the vehicle?
0: Right, because that is what we're doing, right? We're pushing more and more electrification of everything. Do we have the capacity for this?
2: Well, in the near term, it's not an issue. There's, there's only a small number of vehicles right now. So that's why we were looking over multiple decades to, to look at the kind of extreme or extreme case in the future. So, no, right now we don't have that. We're going to need new build into the future anyways for population growth, economic activity, and then an additional amount coming um, because of the electric vehicles coming online.
0: Right. Is there a point, though, where it does become a problem?
2: Uh, i but say, look, it's not necessarily a problem. It's just we'd have to plan for it. So, the, the real upshot of the whole study was saying if you want to deploy electric vehicles, you also have to plan to deploy uh, additional renewable generation because that's where you maximize the benefit of the electric vehicles, obviously, is, is getting that electricity from a renewable source. Uh, and our study was pointing to wind and solar being the, the main generation assets that would get built out, um, assuming we keep our renewable energy mandate in the province.
0: Right. How much more do we need?
2: So if you look at just so if we did we the business as usual case into the future, it needs an additional capacity and beyond kind of business as usual, you need about another sixty percent or so um, to meet the electric vehicle. So it's it's a lot, yeah. um, but it's not unrealistic. And when and you look at the the additional um, energy cost to the um, the price of electricity would only go up. We came up with a number of nine percent. Um, so it's it's not. That much, And then when you balance that against the reduced costs due to not buying gasoline and diesel, especially in this province, which is quite expensive, um, then you end up with probably a net benefit overall when you consider transportation and electricity together.
0: Right. So that 9% number, that 9% increase you talked about, does that factor in kind of the cost of building this increasing infrastructure as well?
2: That's right. Yeah. So the study was everything. So so building the infrastructure, operating it, any fuel cost you might have if you have like a natural gas generator, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's all kind of captured in that dollar per kilowatt hour figure that that nine uh, percent that refers to.
0: Right. And so does this include Site C? Because I think a lot of people think, well, we've got Site C coming on board. We're going to be fine.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah, it does. So in the early 2020s, we assumed that Site C, that large hydro capacity came on board. And then going forward, there wasn't any additional large hydro in the model. It was all being made by uh, wind, solar. There was some natural gas, depending on your renewable energy requirements. And then a little bit of biomass, a little bit of geothermal energy that came into the mix as well.
0: So you're saying we need to look even beyond Site C at this point?
2: Yeah, we're planning for the future, yes. So in the, in the, in the very near campsite sea, we'll add quite a bit of capacity and, and it's kind of fine for the next five plus years, say. But then beyond that, when we go to larger, because it's going to take a while for the fleet to transition. So we have time to plan. So over the kind of next decade or so, that's when we want to be thinking about where is the, that additional generation mm-hmm. going to be starting to be thought about beyond Site C. Yeah.
0: That's actually pretty fast, though, isn't it? Like you're talking about 5, 10 years. I mean, five years ago, it's, we were still arguing about whether or not to build Site C. Yeah,
2: so that's another point that the, the wind and solar can be installed quite quickly relative to a large hydro project. There's, uh, It's easier to put up individual wind turbines and things and incrementally develop that rather than one gigawatt scale plant. So, so that is, it's in the model. We have various build times to actually construct these things. Um, and I think practically speaking, as you think of wind, solar, um, it, is, it is easier to install those comparatively.
0: Right. So when you look at B.C.'s capacity for all this electrification, all these vehicles, all of our transportation system, are we better suited as a province to do that, do you think?
2: We are. We are pretty unique. So we, we're lucky we start from this very large um, hydro system, which is inherently flexible. Um, so, yeah, we've definitely got a head start compared to, say, other provinces that are more coal-dependent, that kind of thing. Um, so it is an ideal place. The, the province has also made good strides in terms of uh, vehicle charging infrastructure, that kind of thing. And then that helps attract vehicles and manufacturers here to, to offer their product into the markets here. So, yeah, I think B.C. is kind of well-positioned. We don't have uh, quite the same weather extremes as other places as well in, in a lot of the province. Um, so overall, yeah, we're, we're kind of a good place to see this this deployment uh, ramp up
0: and when you talk about like electrification of the fleet do you mean all vehicles on the road trucks cars transport the whole thing
2: yeah so this was again that's probably not going to happen but just to look at the extreme case yeah we assumed all of ground transportation so are the 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 trucks and cars that you and i drive the medium duty delivery vehicles heavy duty fleet we also included the, the bus fleet in there, um, so yeah, basically everything that's that's got kind of four wheels on it, um, we we put into the model to see kind of how that would play out.
0: Was there anything that surprised you? Like when you look at that and you go, okay, nine percent—that that's not too bad.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's relatively modest. The other the other number we were able to compute is a, a, a dollars per ton of CO two avoided. So um, we came up with numbers about fifteen or twenty dollars a ton. Um, so when you you put that relative to the carbon tax and then kind of promoting this electrification of transport is a relatively cost-effective way of going after emissions reductions in the province. And, and in transportation in B.C. is a, is a large slice of our, of our pie. So I think our study kind of complements the, the current government action around the 2040 um, ZEV mandate for, for personal vehicles, and this is kind of taking it a step further. What if you put that in case for all the vehicle uh, types, what, what would happen? on the electricity generation part of it
0: right so given what you studied then professor crawford do you look at that and you think okay is bc well suited to go down this path
2: yes i think so i think it did show kind of we we have the potential to do this additional generation that we need in in a reasonably cost-effective manner so yeah it's, it's a good news story i think
0: <laughs> all right well thank you very much for your time
2: yeah. okay thank you very much
0: that's Professor Kern Crawford with the University of Victoria's Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. He's the co-author of this study where they took a look at how much more hydroelectric power we are going to need if we want to electrify everything, if we want everybody driving electric cars, if you know transport trucks, delivery trucks, you name it. We can't do it on the system that we have now. So they've crunched all those numbers. And essentially they said we need an extra 60% by the year 2055. And if we spend the money on the infrastructure and everything, they said it'll be about a 9% increase in costs over what we are paying now. But... As they pointed out as well, there will be savings that come with that. You're not paying for gas anymore and the infrastructure that goes along with that. So if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. If
1: British Columbians thought they could get home perhaps after the Christmas party or even New Year's Eve party by taking an Uber or Lyft or other ride-hailing companies, they could forget it?
0: That's his judge, Joe Hall, transportation critic for the BC Liberals, asking a question that... I think a lot of us are asking today, and that is what the heck is going on with ride hailing in this province? We've been hearing that it would oh, it would be here before Christmas or the end of the year. And now we're hearing about the potential for yet another, yes, another delay. What is that? Well, Global News has obtained a letter from the Passenger Transportation Board to ride-hailing applicants like Uber and Lyft. And it outlines changes in the process that it is blaming on a judicial review of the rules that have been launched by the Vancouver Taxi Association, and therefore resulting in a modification of the application process, potentially for the whole thing now taking longer. We wanted to get to the bottom of this, so we thought, well, let's go to the top on this. Claire Trevena joins us now, the Transportation Minister, to help us out with this. Thank you very much for being here.
4: Good afternoon, Simi.
0: Is this a delay?
4: We are confident that there will be ride hailing in BC by the end of the year. We have 19 companies that have uh, applied to be operating in the Lower Mainland, in the interior, on the island, right across the province. There's a lot of anticipation about this. There's a lot of anticipation from the many, many people who want ride-hailing, and the only people who seem to be upset about this fact are the BC Liberals, who weren't able to deliver on it in five years.
0: But what about this letter, then, from the Passenger Transportation Board? Do you not think that's going to result in any kind of a delay? Because it certainly sounds like it.
4: The Passenger Transportation Board is working through its processes. They're dealing with these 19 applications, and uh, I'm confident we're still going to get ride-hailing by the end of the year.
0: So 19 applicants for this. Does that surprise you?
4: I'm very pleased. It shows that there is really an appetite on both sides. Uh, There's clearly a consumer appetite and there's clearly uh, businesses think that this can work in BC. So we've got the big multinational ones wanting to come in. We've got other Canadian ones wanting to come in. And we've got local companies wanting to develop their own opportunities here too.
0: Is this all over the province for 19 companies? It is. We've got people uh, up Prince George. We've got people in Kamloops. I know there are eight eight
4: applications in Kamloops alone. Uh, Lower Mainland, obviously a big interest, Uh, the island. There's been some who just said, Specifically, they don't want to work in the Lower Mainland and are looking at other regional centres. So I think we'll see ride-hailing across much of the province.
0: Now, let me ask, because some of this judicial review has to do with the Vancouver Taxi Association, does that still impact the process then for other places like Kamloops or Prince George?
4: Well, I'm not going to speculate on what is uh, going to be happening with, with or without a judicial review. I just know that the uh, Passenger Transportation Board is working through its process at the moment to make sure it, it can get through these 19 applications so people can have ride hailing as soon as possible.
0: Have you been in contact with the Passenger Transportation Board about this process, about what's going to happen next?
4: well the passenger transportation board is an independent board it's an independent tribunal so i, I keep uh, as really to be honest i let them do their work um I know that uh, in the past uh, I've written to express concerns expressed by others to the board, um, but they, they're very aware that they have a, a lot of appetite there. They are doing due diligence in making sure that they're giving everybody a fair approach, and I think that is very, very clear. It has always been their mandate to do that. And uh, I'm very excited that uh, we have been able to deliver on what we promised, which is ensuring we can get right hail here.
0: Well, not yet, right? Until somebody's actually in a car taking the ride, we can't say that ride hailing is here yet.
4: Well, we can say that we have a lot of expectation. We have companies that are, have looked at the way that we have introduced ride hailing and said that this looks good. We want to work here. Uh, and I have to say, you know, we had five years of opportunity from the BC Liberals, and they brought us – well, actually, they, 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 dr- they drove Uber out. We had, in 2012, Uber Black had the opportunity to come here. Uh, the BC Liberals said it's going to be a $75 ride, each one. Uber said it's not worth coming in here, and they right. left. So um, I think that the fact that we have 19 companies shows that we are serious about this, shows that what we have drawn up clearly works for the industry, and uh, they all want to work here.
0: Minister Trevena, is it not just a little bit early to be taking the victory lap, though, until we know this, so we have a date that we know this service is up and running? And on that, can you guarantee it will be by the end of the year? I'm confident it's going to be by the end of the year confident is that the same as yes we will have it by the end of the year
4: well we we uh, have to let the passenger transportation board they are working through their own processes and uh, i have every expectation that we will be having ride hail here by the end of the year
0: you mentioned that in the past you have also uh, sent a letter to the board kind of letting them know your concerns about things have you sent a letter sharing your concerns about the timeline
4: uh, the letter that I sent earlier was sharing others' concerns. It's when I was hearing very clearly from a number of uh, municipalities uh, and from um, our own MLAs and other MLAs about uh, what could be happening. So I expressed that to the Passenger Transportation Board. I am not going to interfere. They've made this decision that they need this extra time to work through the, the process of 19 companies, and uh, I anticipate that they they are doing this as speedily as possible. They know that there is a huge appetite they know that there are 19 companies who are also working on their their planning they they, they, this is not being done in any frivolous way
0: right can you foresee a time though where if there is a concern about the timeline where you might have to send a letter out of concern for this
4: i'm not going to speculate on what what will or won't happen in in the coming uh, weeks but as i say i'm confident that this will happen this year
0: all right so that what, what do you say then to people who do view this kind of skeptically
4: Well, I think that uh, there is, people want it, like yesterday, everybody has wanted ride hail for a long while. And as I say, I can understand people's frustration and disappointment because there was the opportunity for five years where nothing was delivered. We rolled up our sleeves, got on with it, uh, got legislation through, drew drew up the regulations, have all the regulations in place. Now we're into the final stages where an independent tribunal is literally dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making sure everything is in place. I just say... It's going to be happening soon.
0: Okay, so you sound confident that this is just, as you said, crossing T's, dotting I's, everything else is on track?
4: Everything is on track. We have done as a government everything we can do to ensure that Ride
0: Hill comes to BC uh, this year. All right, we'll hold you to that. I'm sure we'll be talking to you if that doesn't happen. Thank you very much, Simi. Thank you. That is Claire Trevena, the BC Transportation Minister. Lots of concerns, you know, floating around out there today that the Passenger Transportation Board has just made it, the whole process, a little bit longer by outlining some changes in their process uh, to approving their applications. But you just heard the Transportation Minister there say repeatedly that she is confident that everything remains on track and we will still be having ride hailing by the end of the year as i said to her though still a little early for that victory lap i often talk about this with ian Tostenson, who is the head of ride sharing now the lobby group has been trying to push and push and push for this and i've said to him i'm not going to believe this until i'm sitting in the car as you've been hearing, talks have now broken off between Unifor and Coast Mountain Bus Company. So the strike action that is planned for tomorrow, full speed ahead at this point. So what could possibly bring these two sides back to the table? What went wrong here? Let's get an update now from Gavin McGarrigal, who's the Western Regional Director of Unifor. Gavin, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Simi. What What happened?
1: Well, the company came in and uh, they made it very clear in their presentation that they weren't prepared to come anywhere close to the union's position. Uh, For instance, their position on transit operator wages had not changed one penny since prior to the 72-hour notice was issued. It hadn't changed yesterday either. And despite the fact that we worked all day and into the evening to give them a counter-proposal, not one more penny was added to transit operators' wages. There was no uh, acceptance of... Uh, The problem where SkyTrain mechanics are paid more than our mechanics, so there was no movement in that area. And most significantly, they didn't change one comma in the language that they were proposing about working conditions. And that language had loopholes in it big enough to drive a bus through. And most importantly, doesn't provide any minimum time at all for any transit operator to be guaranteed a break on a daily basis. Um, What we found particularly insulting as well is that they proceeded to tell us about how that they were the protectors of the public and that they were going to make sure that they defended the public. And, you know, for our operators that are out there every day dealing with 36% overcrowding, uh, you know, people being assaulted, people being irate, uh, it was particularly challenging. So, you know, they very much made it clear in their commentary that unless we were prepared to accept their position or very very close to it uh, don't even bother making a counter proposal so despite the fact that we were prepared to stay here overnight and and into the early morning hour it became very clear that this company has chosen uh that they want to have a strike
0: okay so then gavin from everything you've described there was there any movement at all like you've been negotiating quite a bit over the last couple of weeks did anything change during that time was there anything there might have been an agreement on
1: You had a very, very slight movement on benefits and a couple of cent movement on some shift premiums, but uh, no change in wages for transit operators, no attempt to address the gaps and no change at all, not even a comma semi on uh, working condition changes that had already been rejected.
0: Now, I know that the working conditions issue is a big one, and I feel like that's the one the public has really talked a lot about as well. The idea that you don't get a break at all on your shift, is that, do you think, a breaking point for bus drivers?
1: It's absolutely a breaking point for bus drivers. I mean, pretty much anyone in any um, job, whether it's McDonald's or whether it's working in a corporate office, Knows that you're going to get some minimum level of a break. You know, often it's a couple of 15-minute coffee breaks and an unpaid lunch. Uh, they can't point to any specific clause that guarantees a minimum level of breaks. They talk to us in terms of overall system hours, but what we find is when that breaks down to the individual level of a driver, if there's congestion, if there's extra boarding time that's required, uh, basically uh, that uh, that recovery time evaporates. And so they say, "We'll fix it next time. We'll fix it next time." But for people who are going to work every single day and they can't take a break and then they're made to feel uh you know that going to the washroom is, is something bad uh it's just gotten intolerable for our members and the statistics uh, back it up as well
0: what, what kind of statistics
1: well again the ridership has increased 18 uh, percent from 2016 to 2018 but overcrowded buses have gone up 36 percent. if those buses are overcrowded that means it's taking longer and longer to load and unload those buses and it means that there's less time in the system to actually get around so clearly uh the overcrowding is increasing the ridership is increasing but they really haven't done anything significant uh to address the recovery time and and the minimum break time that our members need i mean for us this is a basic human right uh they're not robots they're they're out there for seven and a half hours a day they're not people that are measured in the aggregate they're people saying what is my minimum break time per day and they can't answer that question
0: Uh, what happens now then gavin what are the next steps here
1: so we've announced the uh, we will be proceeding to legal strike action. We will be moving to a maintenance and sea bus overtime ban. Our operators will be out there in a uniform ban. We made it very clear to the company that we were prepared to escalate uh, as required. Uh, we're prepared. The last strike went on for four months. We're prepared to meet to last six months, nine months, a year if we need to. Uh, we are not going to back down, and we are going to continue to fight until we get a real change in approach at the company. We we really, it can really be boiled down in one simple word. It's just respect, respect for the hard work our members do.
0: You said that you're prepared to escalate this. What kind of calendar do you have set aside for that? Like how fast would this escalate?
1: We're going to take it on a day-by-day basis. We're going to evaluate sort of what the impact is. I mean, what we're asking now is for the public to reach out to their mayors, to reach out to CNBC, and, and quite simply, you know, you see TransLink trying to hide behind the curtain of CNBC, uh, but you also see TransLink spokespersons out there. Uh, at the end of the day, the funding comes from TransLink from three different levels of government. Uh, TransLink needs to answer the question why they think mechanics at SkyTrain are worth more than the mechanics to fix the buses. You know, why they think that they can happily accept awards for best transit system in North America and yet pay significantly less than other transit uh areas such as toronto even though the cost of living is here so we're asking the public to help us out to reach out to make sure that those phone lines are flooded and, and make sure that you know they understand that the protectors of the public out here are the bus operators and mechanics every single day not uh not the executives at cnbc and transit
0: now cnbc mean coast mountain bus company uh, you mentioned the maintenance workers and the no overtime like how significant is that is there a reliance on overtime in the system
1: Absolutely. We expect to see impacts on service uh, within a couple of days. Uh, We expect uh, out of the three C-buses in operation that at least one of them will probably be uh, affected almost immediately. And uh, we know, for instance, in the parts department, they operate on a just-in-time service. And we know it's hard enough right now for our members to get those buses out on the road. And so with the the overtime ban, we expect that... uh, Routes will be cancelled and 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 timing points will be impacted and 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 the other thing is is that every day that that goes on, it just piles up more and more and the backlog gets bigger and bigger. So uh, it will be an impact. We've tried to design it in such a way that uh, hopefully the impact on the public is uh, minimal, uh, but there will be some impact. And um, again, we think the public can help to solve this if they make it clear that uh, they're not. Uh, They're not going to stand behind uh, the company executives. They're going to stand behind the people that serve them every day.
0: Now, that's Friday's plans. When will we know what the Saturday plans are?
1: Well, I think we're probably going to maintain that uh, for a little bit and see what happens. And uh, as I said, from our perspective, um, even if we just maintain those plans um, over time, it's just going to get significantly more of an impact on the bus service. And, uh, you know, if they still don't get the message at that point, uh, then we'll certainly consider ramping it up into other options as well.
0: So, Gavin, are there any other talks that are scheduled for this point or is that it?
1: No, I think we're definitely into a dispute, and there are no other talks scheduled, and it became clear to us that this company wants a strike, welcomes a strike, and uh, somehow thinks that our members are going to be deterred.
0: We have talked to so many people about the issue of leadership, but not quite like our next guest. I mean, leadership skills from comes from all different sources— But the inspiration for our next guest, as I said, is very unique. His inspiration actually comes from his past, which to call it troubled is probably a bit of an understatement. But he shares all of that in his new book. It's called The Cure for Hate. And the author is Tony McLearny. He joins us now to talk about that. Tony, welcome back to the show.
5: Thank you for having me on.
0: It's been a long time.
5: Seven, seven years.
0: years. Yeah, seven <laughs> years since we had you on before. Uh, but now we had to have you on to talk about your book that you have written. It's The Cure for Hate, A Former White supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. What is
5: radical compassion? Well, compassion, and we'll start with what's empathy. Empathy is, is feeling with another person what they're going through. Um, compassion is taking action to relieve the suffering of another so empathy plus action equals compassion radical compassion takes it a step forward and there's three components to it number one your practice of compassion must take you outside your comfort zone number two um, we're not just talking about the alleviation of the suffering of uh, a person or persons there's an element of social activism which is uh, inspired to change the environment which gives rise to or supports the suffering and number three, which is the most radical part at all, we have to develop self compassion before we can give it to others. We have to mine it from ourselves, and that means facing our pain and facing our wounds and and uh, doing some healing work
0: and you know of what you speak because we're going to go over how you got to this place as well. but as you point out how does how does a young man, how does a boy raised in Dunbar, good family, all of that end up as a white supremacist? How does that happen, Tony?
5: Well, you know Because uh, as a co-founder of Life After Hate, we deal with young people that, that get into this all the time. Since Charlottesville, we've had over three hundred uh, requests for assistance from families, and uh, half from families, half from individuals. And it, you know, almost invariably, and research shows this that you know there's those vulnerabilities people have that allow them to be seduced by the ideology. And it's not so much the ideology that seduces them; it's what the idea, what comes with the ideology. Uh, a sense of purpose a sense of meaning a sense of um, acceptance and power and and all these things and if we are lacking those things in our life there's a variety of pathways out there that will lure us with the false promises of those things
0: what happened to you then how did you get lured into that what were those false promises that appealed to you
5: well, for me, I got power when I felt powerless, attention when I felt unlovable, uh, invisible and uh, acceptance when I felt un- unlovable. And, and those things all stem from uh, things that happened in my childhood, you know, and I think that, you know, as, as part of the human experience, you know, we have a thing uh, called toxic shame, you know, and, and for me, toxic shame is an impaired sense of self, um, whether we get it at school, at, at house or through bullying or through whatever, um, we at the very depth of our core belief system of who we are, we feel that we're not good enough, we're less than, we're not whole, um, we're not smart enough, pretty enough, whatever. And we live our lives in reaction to that, to mask that, to hide that, to prevent the world from seeing the deficiency.
0: So then would you say, when you have those feelings, that instead you lash out at other people, you find other people in order to feel superior to?
5: Absolutely. So we, from that place of toxic shame, and there's often an unresolved anger that goes along with the toxic shame, we do one of two things. We either externalize the shame and anger and project it onto someone else. Um, That looks like violence, emotional violence, bullying, joining a gang, uh, an extremist group. Murder is the ultimate externalized expression of shame. Um, but more often than not, we do it to ourselves. We internalize the shame and it's eating disorders, cutting, substance abuse. Uh, even disease can be a weird way that the body attacks itself to deal with it. And suicide is the ultimate expression of internalized shame.
0: Right. But you found yourself hanging out with, well, now we would say all the wrong people,
5: mm-hmm.
0: um, acting out, would you say, with violence?
5: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Targeting certain groups? Um,
5: yeah, for sure for sure
0: like what can you give us an idea of what would go on like with your with your so-called friends at that time
5: well I think I could if I were going to recall an incident when I was 16 or 17 and we were down by the aquatic center which is where gay men used to go cruising and we were I think there's about half a dozen of us and we were drinking beers and you know shouting things at the at the men that walked by and and you know one turned around and told us to f off and that was the provocation and it was on and mm-hmm. We chased him and we chased him into a construction site and he got into like underneath a, like a, almost like a crawl space where we couldn't get at him. And, you know, and it's, you know, I still feel the shame of what we did, but we, like kids at the lake. You were terrorizing somebody. Yeah. And we picked up stones and we were like kids at the lake, skipping stones across the lake, except we were skipping them into the crawl space to hit a target we couldn't see. And the only way we knew that we hit him is when he yelled out in in pain. And, you know, it's... I know what it's like to be in that place of powerlessness, to know that there's something bad's about to happen, there's absolutely nothing I could do about it. And instead of having understanding and empathy for that man, um, I projected, I put it onto him, I took it off myself and put it onto him and... And, uh, you know, that's the, the dark part of human nature. I think there's a great quote that says, that which we don't transform, we we transmit.
0: What was the turning point for you?
5: It was a process, not an individual point, but it really started with the birth of my daughter and my son 15 months later. And that began the process of the opening uh, of my heart because up until that point, I was completely self-absorbed, completely full of ego and narcissism and the only person I thought about was me. I think that one of our co-founders, Frank Mink, has got a great, great quote. And he says, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> uh, and then I was a single parent when they were two and four. And, and uh, you know, for the first time, you know, I was thinking of someone else other than myself. And the magical thing about children is they're safe to love. It was safe for me to allow myself to take down the guard and, and, and feel because the, you know, the reason we close off, it's because we learn somewhere along the way, it's not safe to be open. Um, but children aren't capable of shame. They're not capable of ridicule. They're not capable of rejection, at least till they're about 13.
0: Were you afraid of what they would see of, were you afraid of them emulating the hate of them hearing these things that you were talking about with friends of yours?
5: Absolutely. And, and, you know, the last thing that, you know, as my daughter started to grow up, the last thing, last place I wanted my daughter to be was in this movement that was full of misogyny and anger and negativity, and it was not a healthy a healthy place to be. And, um, you know, at that point, I'm, I left the movement, you know, when they were about, about five and six. I left the movement, but I kept my identity intact. The challenge for me in that space was my ideology and my identity were intertwined. And I think that's, that holds true for a lot of people. And in, in what was
0: your, what was the ideology at that time? Would you say?
5: Oh, that whites were superior and that we were under threat by, you know, the great replacement, you know, white genocide and, and the, the masterminds, the architects of that white genocide uh, was this international hive mind of Jews that were out to destroy the white race. That was the
0: And that, would you say you were in that circle with other people who also thought that? Absolutely. And so, yeah, if your kids are young, they pick up on that kind of stuff. How did you know then that you hadn't, they hadn't picked up on that? Like that must have been important to you, right? When as a parent, is you want, you don't want that poison in their minds?
5: Uh, Yeah, but at the time I didn't think it was poison. And, you know, as I went back uh, later on in life and went to family members and other members that uh to, to apologize for what I'd done and and um you know the my coach and mentor Dov Barron, you know told me how to give a heartfelt apology and you say how did what I did affect you and then you, <laughs> then you shut up and, and then you no, listen no yeah. deflection and just you know feel it and take it in and and you know my my son said to me, you know, you uh, you know you never you never put it on us. You never forced it on us and uh, you know he doesn't remember being in you know and trying to indoctrinate it. and 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 so i think for them to survive in preschool and stuff like that i i didn't do that and let them have their have their choice but um was it was,
0: walk, was walking away hard
5: it, it it wasn't it wasn't the hard part was the identity piece letting go of the identity and you know how i how the ego likes to go through these mental gymnastics to Contort itself to fit the new reality. I convinced myself that, you know, with my phone line having gone to the Supreme Court of Canada twice, that why should I care about fighting for a bunch of white people who really couldn't care whether I lived or died? If I was really going to serve the white race, I'll take care of it. Make sure these two children thrive and survive. And that's how I pivoted out of the movement, but kept the ideology and identity intact. In
0: but since then, obviously, a lot has changed for you. When you look back now. Do you go? Oh, if only I had done this differently. Or I can't believe this got me. Like, is it? Is it? Were you surprised by how you were attracted to this? Like, what do you tell other people?
5: Well, you can't always. You can't always see it with the clarity of hindsight right. when you're when you're in it. Um, you know, I was a, a lot of what I was amazed at and looking looking back. And you know, in the book, I, I look back on it with the hindsight and and the. Insight gleaned from over a thousand hours of one-on-one and group counseling. So, in, in in the middle book, where I'm trying to, you know, capture the fervor and intensity of being there, I'm also stepping out with the the reflections in hindsight of what was what was driving it. And and um, you know, the, one of the things that really stuck out is is um, you know and i ask people this question think of all about all your behaviors and beliefs and ask yourself is it the same as one of your parents is it the opposite of one of your parents or is it actually yours and it's amazing how many of my behaviors and beliefs and choices were actually one of the two polarities of mostly mostly my dad
0: like the opposite of your dad
5: or the same like my dad was bombed by the germans during world war Two, so he wasn't, you know, I, I had a picture of the guy who sent the bombs on my wall. You know, there's, it's an interesting way to be angry at your dad. But at the same time, you know, I like this out of the punk scene. I like the skinhead thing because it was very, you know, pro-British and jingoistic. And, you know, my dad was, there's nothing more English than an Englishman abroad. And and that was my dad growing up. And so there's, we sometimes try to align ourselves with our parents right. for as a false bond to get their acceptance and, a, and approval. And,
0: or react to your parents. Or,
5: or react. Yeah. But how much of... How much of these behaviors are, they're not conscious, they're just part of these so true. psychological um, things going on in the background.
0: Was it cathartic for you, writing the book?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there was parts of the book that I had completely forgotten. They, really?
0: Like it all came know, back to you as you were writing
5: it? Because you know, I, was, I was checking the internet, you know, just to make sure things were dates When you and remembered facts. and yeah you know and i came across an article that uh, that uh you know talking about how the aryan resistance movement was Canada's largest neo nazi skin thing and I'd, i remember being a part of ARM, but i the ego is crazy when it wants to get rid of stuff and yeah. and hide even stuff you've heard just 30 seconds before it'll stuff that it doesn't you translate
0: it in your mind quite differently right yeah. depending on how you want to perceive that
5: and then it then it all all came came back but it's uh is it the Eagles, or the Eagles, a trickster.
0: What do you hope people get out of this?
5: Well, I think that um, I hope for some people that they see parts of their own journey. If they didn't, even if they didn't end up in a hate group, um, they can learn something about their own healing. I think if there's families are, that are worried about a loved one that are caught up in, in this, this movement, I think it'll provide them with some insights and some answers on how to deal with it and how to understand it. And um, as, as a resource for, for people trying to understand how do young people get drawn in and more importantly, how do they, how do they leave and, and how does life after hate help people leave so people can follow that example.
0: Well, Tony, thanks so much for being with us today.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: We appreciate that. That is Tony MacLear. The book is called The Cure for Hate, A Former White Supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. It's available now and we've been talking to Tony as part of our leadership series. We'll be right back.